0: Welcome to the Sum of It All Humanizing Disability and Mathematics podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn, from the San Diego County Office of Education, and we're back for season two, exploring humanizing disability and mathematics education by Paulo Tan, Alexis Padilla, Erica Mason, and James Sheldon. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. In this episode, we're diving into chapter four on what are disabilities. And I have to say, I thought I knew the answer to this question, but I should have known that Paulo and his colleagues would once again, bring up aspects uh, around this that I hadn't considered. And uh, So for instance, just right after the start of the chapter, they asked this question, why do you think it's important to build on disability as a difference and not as a deficit? And I really think that just pushes us right off the gate to think about when we put out a definition for what we think disability is, um, what does it sound like? What are the words we use? And I have to admit that My first take on that came off with someone who can't see, someone who can't walk, someone who can't, um, with that fill in the blank, filling in the different disabilities there. And that that deficit viewpoint is is really problematic. So how do I shift my thinking into thinking around it instead as just a difference? And how do I still um, think about that in a way that empowers individuals, um, but acknowledges the differences and the beauty of those differences?
1: Wow, Audrey, uh, great points. You know, it really, you're taking me back to that word normal. You know, the word seems to just push us toward the idea of deficit. And because the deficit is, you know, when we use the word deficit, that's like what we're saying. It's like, la- this is what you're lacking to be quote unquote normal. So what I'm wondering is like, once we discard that word normal, um, we, we can start to acknowledge variability. And that can lead us to this idea of uh, valuing identity.
0: I think that's really, um, really, really good advice to think about how we discard that word of normal. How do we get rid of that in our mindsets of holding up these um, imaginary measuring sticks to each other? There's Mm -hmm. a quote on page uh, 39 that talks about that if we think about disability as a natural variation among people rather than pathology or tragedy, that disability becomes one of many um, among many identity markers that people may claim. And that just reminds me of that idea of having an identity marker or an identity wheel and thinking about all the different parts of who you are and how that all together informs how you view the world and how you interact with communities and um, how, how you feel about your identity. Um, so it really made me think about how we could then leverage the idea of differences instead of saying that there's some normal um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: normal marker there.
1: Yeah, Audrey, uh, a moment ago, you used that word tragedy. And boy, that was a word that gave me pause in the, in this particular chapter. Um, there's a quote on page 39. And here's what it says, to pretend not to notice a person's particular embodiment in the world is to dismiss her way of being as too tragic to acknowledge. And I think that When I think of the word tragedy or tragic in this context, the thing I really appreciate about that is it really makes me stop and pause and and consider this whole uh, thing that we're discussing here and and really consider how are we viewing our students? Because that word tragic is something that makes me really reevaluate myself and say, am I looking at a particular student in that way?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely powerful. And it furthermore makes me think about what parts of our identities are seen as tragic, right? So is your religion, your gender identity or your race? Maybe your socioeconomic status, um, age for sure. Like if you can think about each of those pieces, um, how are we viewing those as a tragic indication of who someone is as opposed to just a difference, right? And um, acknowledging the beauty of that instead. I think it really pushes on that idea of normal that you talked about earlier, and and that you know if you were to think of a normal quote unquote identity wheel, what would those markers all say, um, and who controls the narrative on that, and why aren't we taking control of that and saying that we really need to reconsider uh, removing that that word normal and um, instead saying that you know each of these pieces that people contribute to who you are and how you view the world and how you interact with the world is just who you are, right? That mm-hmm. there's, that there isn't someone out there who actually achieves this normal piece, um, which goes back to, I think one of our favorite um, clips of all time, which is like this myth of average, maybe it's mm-hmm. myth of normal, you know, it doesn't exist. There isn't right. a normal person there. Um, there are many, many, many people, but none of them are this um, mythical normal.
1: Right. You know, and I, and I don't know about you, Audrey, but this this really takes me back to my classroom and all the students that that I taught over the years. And that just this idea of identity and and how did I handle that? Um, And what was interesting is in in this chapter on page 33, the authors actually write about uh, how some prospective teachers reported that in their general education classes, that they have observed disabled students and they the, the, the thing that they mentioned is the disabled students did not stand out. And wow, Audrey, that just took me right back to my fifth grade classroom. The last couple of years where I had a full inclusion environment in my classroom. And when I had people come and visit my classroom and they said that to me and they said, Wow, Mark, I can't even tell that you have students that have IEPs that are in your class right now during this lesson. I really considered that to be something that was, at the time, I felt like, wow, that was such a high compliment uh, to the work that we were doing in the classroom, to the students, to the environment. And boy, I'm really rethinking that now and really thinking about how, you know, now with what I know now, as we're reading this chapter, that 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 was something that, that I wouldn't look the same. I wouldn't look at that the same way as I look at it now. The authors provide one other example that I really think drives this point home. You know, they, they give these three examples. They say, would you ever, you know, how do these sound? I'll just read them if, if you're not reading along with us. Um, the first one is, you're the least black person I ever met. I never think of you as Jewish. You don't act like a woman. So those three statements are, are things that really make you think about identity and how how are we considering our students identity in the classroom and is it really okay for us to say we didn't notice the students with disabilities and we didn't notice that they were in the classroom so audrey just a lot of rethinking all of that um with uh with this chapter for sure um and uh you know i think this is a good time to to share two of the prominent models of disability that uh, the author uh, the authors talk about and two of the prominent models are uh, the medical model and the social model and in the medical model they describe it as locating the deficit impairment or disability solely on the individual so um, and they talk about this model dominating inside and outside of school um, versus a social model which is where the deficit is located within the systems and practices so uh, I think this is so interesting because I, I never really thought of that there were two, two models out there so much. I just sort of thought about this. What's the best practice that I should be you know, using with my students to make sure that that they are able to achieve. Um, but really, this whole idea of a medical model versus a social model really makes us to start to think about, um, are we really doing the best thing for our students? Because it really it really depends on how we're positioning them. Um, what are you thinking about these models, Audrey?
0: It's a, it's a great question, Mark. Um, I think everything in my teaching experience with the medical model and, you know, perpetuated the medical model and the social model instead just makes <laughs> so much more sense to me. Um, it was so powerful when I read about, um, Dana and Dana talked in the, in the example talking about how, um, you know, they make a case that Dana's dyscalculia can be partially attributed to her and to the teacher. Um, And that, that was just, that was just an aha moment for me that it says like, it's, 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 it's a social construct that we say that you are not fitting into this idea of normal again, right? And so because you don't fit in there, we're going to label you as different and we're going to slap on all these words to describe you as opposed to really appreciating and acknowledging that you that you experience the world differently than I experience it. And that that's actually a beautiful thing and actually a really helpful thing. Um, and going back to the idea that mathematics needs disabled students.
1: Right. It's not the other way around.
0: That we need their viewpoint. We need how they see the world in there. Um, It also reminds me a lot of um, a student I had in one year of calculus. Um, They had dyscalculia. And I remember the the way that I was approaching at the beginning of the year was through the medical model of saying like, okay, what's fair? What's right? What's not right for you to have time or space or um, access to other resources? What's in your IEP? What's not in your IEP? But the student thank goodness had both the maturity at that point as a high school student, but the patience with me to um, help me see that it was really about um, learning about what fit them as a learner and what I was able to then figure out as a teacher. Um, And gosh, that should not be that student's responsibility, but I'm so Mm -hmm. thankful that they took the time to help me grow as an individual and really think through what it looks and sounds like to do mathematics. Um, because they had such genius to share with the whole class. Mm. Um, and that without that opportunity, they would have been completely excluded. um, and we all would have lost out. And so I just, I think of that moment as we get into these examples about it, that, um, that if it's a social construct, then we have to look at ourselves as part of the problem there um, and saying like, how do I change my viewpoints on this? Or how do I, how do I get rid of that measuring stick that I'm holding up thinking that there is some normal here um, that everyone's supposed to ascribe to?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And you know what you're making me think of too here, Audrey, is that, you know, it starts to become a little bit of an overwhelming process of sort of like considering all the things that that I may not be doing right and and everything. And on page 36, I just really appreciate the authors reminding us that there's no intention of inequity here uh, with with the overwhelming majority of teachers. I mean, and so one of the things that I've been thinking about is it seems like this is not about caring. This is about blind spots. Like it's not about a lack of caring. It's about blind spots. I mean, we we both shared a couple uh, today that you know of, of things that we just didn't know um, and uh, you know it's it's something that we need to just continue to learn about and to, to look for our, our next steps and things that we can do um, to impact the system and 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 uh, do do right by our students um, and so the thing that'm I'm, I'm thinking about that authors start to talk about that that may be one of these next steps is has to do with the IEP goals and you know what I've been thinking about, is that this idea of the, the, the narrow view of mathematics um, that, that happens when we have particular assessments, uh, diagnostics, and so forth, a lot of those things support that narrow view of mathematics and it really limits kids and be able to share their brilliance at times. And you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about this question. How much brilliance can be shown by any student if, if what they're sharing is mimicking from their teacher. So in other words, if if what we have an assessment in an IEP, uh, if those particular goals we have for our students, if our goal for them is to see, are you proficient at mimicking? And made me think about like, wow, how limiting is that? And how could we possibly see that they're brilliant? Because I don't think you or I, Audrey, would maybe even consider that be a measure of brilliance to be like, wow, you're such a good mimicker, man, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm just wondering like, what could be a next step around this piece, uh, Audrey, with um, this IP and assessment structure that's all built on this narrow view of mathematics. And so this is, that's, that's kind of what I'm grappling with right now.
0: I think it's a, a worthwhile thing to grapple with and this text definitely brings up some points. That pushed me to really think about next steps here um, with IEPs in particular. Uh, I have to recognize or acknowledge, I guess, that my teacher preparation courses or perhaps the mindset that I was in when I was in those courses led me to believe that um, IEPs were something that I was supposed to fear and follow, like don't Mm. question it, um, just do it like someone's figured out what's best for the child, do what's in there. I actually didn't know until probably five to six years into teaching that I, as their classroom general education teacher, could contribute to constructing their IEP. Like wow. I had, like I had no idea about that. Um, I didn't. I thought other people, you know, quote unquote. X. I'm going to put quotes there and say experts in another room because uh, just like mathematics, uh, for a long time I thought someone else who knew mathematics. Like mm-hmm. there was a gurus of math came down from the heavens and told us this is how <laughs> math needs to be done, right? That it wasn't something I was a someone who got to partake in and create, right? And similarly, I viewed IEPs the same way. Like there were gurus of IEPs who would create them and say, this is what needs to happen for students. And I had no idea that they were supposed to be co-constructed documents, that we were supposed to sit down together as a community and say, what makes sense? How do I learn about what my student needs and how do I acknowledge um, what I can do as a teacher and how do I look at all of these pieces in concert with each other and make a plan for their success. Right. Um, which I really, really believe is at the heart of what IEPs are there for. And so I, I'm just, I keep thinking about this place around like um, how we give them a chance to showcase their mathematical being in an IEP. Right. And mm. how we can do that. And I, I really think that um, as teachers, we can have impact on this. We we can take a stand. Um, I know as a high school teacher that oftentimes I would get a notice saying, "Hey, we have an IEP scheduled for fourth period at this time on this random day," and I was like, "I can't take a sub, a single period sub. It's going to mess up all my lesson plans, right?" And I was like, "Don't worry, just keep going, roll without me." Um, and every time I made that choice, I was. I was choosing to perpetuate the system as it was, as opposed to mm-hmm. choosing to push back on it. Right. And so right. I'm, I'm curious about how we um, might think about as, as a point of where we can begin to think about changes. How do we have an active seat at that table about saying like, this is the mathematics um, that I'm trying to describe. This is how I view mathematics as something that's both beautiful, uh, but something that every person has a chance to showcase their brilliance in. Um, and then take that time to construct something that will then be a powerful um document for the students so that they can leverage their best self throughout the year, right? Um, yeah. So I'm really thinking about that as a step about how we don't just sign off and quickly say someone else figure it out for me and just tell me what I'm supposed to do, but we take a seat at the table and we say, how can I help be part of this um, this, this constructing of this document and this this child's future.
1: Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, Audrey. And the reason that I do is because I think it is so easy when reading a chapter like this to be overwhelmed and say, I am such a small piece of this system and I, I, I can't change it all at once. But I think uh, what is important is for us to all find where is that, that place that we can be in the, in, the, in the process that can have a positive impact. And I think for me, uh, the thing that resonated with me that I think could be that place for me or if I was back in the classroom could be for me is that section that was on around least restrictive environment. Um, Boy, I thought that was so interesting. Um, The authors talk about how least restrictive, least restrictive environment is often interpreted as safer, more individualized learning environment like a resource room so. You know, instead of thinking about the general education classroom as that least restrictive environment, many times it's thought about in this way of like, no, we need to make sure that you're in a safer, more individualized space. And sometimes it's thought about it's medically and more humane to separate and seclude students in that way. Um, And so I think that once we start to open our view and our beliefs around this, As you were saying earlier, Audrey, we could address the idea that the general education class might be very rigid and have deficiencies. And that may be the reason that our students may not be successful. Um, It really reminds me of of universal design for learning and how um, that can really support that social model and how with thinking about from from the beginning of of the instruction and the planning process of how we can plan in advance for for that variability of all of our learners, that that can really help us with um, that rigidity and deficiency. So I think for me, dealing with that phrase least restrictive environment, I think that that will be something that I will continue to consider as a next step for me. And I think uh, teachers could as well because it's something that I know as teachers open their classrooms uh, this school year, it's something that they're going to have decisions to be made around that. Um, so that's that's something I'm thinking about that, Audrey.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark. I also know that, you know, when we talk about RTI and we're talking about um, how we get to the next level of interventions, so there's a lot of talk about that going on right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're in the middle of trying to come out of a pandemic. And we hear a lot of people talking about how are we gonna deal with the learning gaps and the learning loss. And um, we continue to attribute it all to the students, um, that there are some students who are deficit instead of looking back and saying, perhaps what do we gotta look back and say what's wrong with tier one? How do, how do I take some ownership over that and consider it? And I think it goes back to an earlier comment you made around blind spots. Like you and I um, in reading this chapter are uncovering some of our own blind spots. Mm -hmm. Um, but part of uncovering blind spots is then figuring out how do you, how do you deal with that in the future? Like now that I know I have a blind spot, it doesn't mean, okay, keep going on in the world as I go. And I'm going to keep having that blind spot. You have to do something different, right? Like in a car, when you know you have a blind spot, that's why they say, now turn over that shoulder before you (laughs) change lanes. Right.
1: Right. And I
0: think when we talk about theories of like, how do we overcome bias? We talk about like, don't make decisions when you're hungry, slow yourself down. Think about the time of day you're making decisions. So, and maybe it's as simple as saying like, when I hear someone say least restrictive environment, when I hear someone say, we're moving to intervention, when I hear someone talk about an IEP meeting that they don't want to go to, how do I slow myself down from making my knee jerk reaction into student deficit, right? Like, yes, you're right. Better to separate the students, better to move them into a tier two, better to have someone else figure out what's right for them. How do I slow myself down and say, wait a second, this is where I have a blind spot. Let me rethink this for a moment. Let me pause for a moment. Um, I know, you know, in the classroom teachers are making so many decisions every second of the day and so it's worth saying like there are some things we need to acknowledge that we need to say i can't answer that right now because i have to pause and think about that i ha- in order to get past my blind spot i'm gonna have to do something different um and goodness gracious it might be to eat lunch because we know as a teacher how often did you skip your <laughs> lunch break um so like think about those things that like push you to not make really thoughtful decisions and just go with status quo? And how do you push back against that and say, you know, at the end, we might make the exact same decision. It might actually be the best decision for the child, but how do I slow that down knowing that I have a blind spot there? How do I turn over my shoulder and look to make sure there's nothing there that I'm missing um, before I change lanes? So um, food for thought as we think about next
1: steps. Well, wow, Audrey, I thought that was just fantastic. I think you, you have great advice for us there with, with pausing and, and considering there are blind spots are great, great next step. I think I might take that one, too. <laughs> uh, well, I, as I'm thinking about lasting takeaways uh, from this chapter, Audrey, um, I have to say, and I think I've mentioned her before. I think I'm going to go back to Dr. Gutierrez. She always pushes me, and I just uh, really appreciate it. I'm going to just quickly read this quote here. And it says this on page 39, by the way, for teachers of mathematics, this means approaching our work with the idea of disability as rich with assets, unique knowledge, and different ways of knowing and doing mathematics. Disability would be considered as a valuable identity in mathematics classrooms in which varied lived experiences and waves of being are seen as vital to the learning of all well that that quote was just so powerful for me and and the reason it's my lasting takeaway is i really want to continue to push myself to understand what that looks and sounds like for students in classrooms um i want to be really aware of that and really aware of students potential but really even more than that aware of how this this whole way of approaching mathematics and supporting students in mathematics is really going to look and sound different and it will have to look and sound different for us to make sure that we're addressing this variability that has traditionally excluded students. And um, I mean, it really goes back to that quote that you mentioned earlier that we had in our previous uh, uh, episode, which is that mathematics needs disabled students. It, it, we're, we are less than without them. And so as Dr. Gutierrez points out, we have to start approaching our work with the idea of disability as rich with assets and that's what what I'm walking away with today Audrey
0: I love that Mark I think I'm going to take a piece of that to say for my lasting takeaway um I'm going to keep thinking around this idea of, of how we get rid of the word normal like how do mm. we especially disassociate it with the idea that that's more human but that's the way to be um especially when we're thinking about disabilities I um the quote on page 35 that says, in some learning disabilities, mathematics, learning disabilities, or dyscalculia are not straightforward disorders located within individuals. They are aspects of social constructions and situations to consider, such as the role of the teacher, how that diagnostic tools are developed, and what opportunities are provided for students to show different ways of knowing and doing mathematics. And so, as you said, like, how do we offer those spaces to, um, to all students to show their genius? And I I'm just going to leave, continuing to think about what's my place in perpetuating that idea that we're all trying to be normal. Like, how do I continue to push back against that? How do I continue to try to change that narrative in my classroom with the people I work with? Um, That I continue to say, like, what's the measuring stick you're holding up in, you know, in your head that you think we're all measuring up against and why? And how do we really shift that into looking at the, uh, just the absolute beauty and, marvel that when we all show up with different identity markers and we show up with diversity there that we're actually um creating as a collectivist group something better than any of us could create apart. So I'm holding on to that as a as a lasting takeaway.
1: Oh that's great. That's great. Folks thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode we will chat about chapter five, exploring knowledge and identity as tools for humanizing mathematics. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T. With your questions and thoughts, we'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes in forging new paths.